Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In the current series, we've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel. As we have seen, Deuteronomy urges the people to follow the law of the Lord so that all might go well with them in the land of Canaan. If they diligently serve the Lord, they will experience divine blessing. The people may indulge their cravings in the land of Canaan because of the land's fruitfulness and prosperity. Canaan's abundance allows everyone to indulge their cravings without the need to engage in mimetic rivalry over scarce resources. By contrast, similar cravings sparked mimetic crises during Israel's wilderness wanderings where the objects of desire were either scarce or absent. Yet, if Israel forsakes the Lord and worships the gods of Canaan, the people will suffer divine wrath, that is, mimetic violence. As we discussed in the last episode, the law handed down from Moses functions as a boundary marker which delineates the faithful Israelite community from their enemies. Where this boundary marker is not carefully maintained, Israel is in danger of suffering the same fate as their Canaanite neighbours. Let's read on now from chapter 14 verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the land. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibix, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven into and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, they are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these, whatever has fins and scales you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat, it is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eeled owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is in your towns that he may eat of it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The passage opens with a prohibition against cutting oneself or hair as part of the mourning process. Many scholars have suggested that 
self-harm prohibited in our text reflects an ancient pagan mourning practice. While this may be true, it is worthwhile considering how such a practice might become established. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but from what I understand, some people cut themselves to deal with intense emotional pain. This behavior apparently can become quickly addictive as the pain of self-harm provides an immediate distraction from the subject's psychological inner torment. In our modern world, psychologists have raised alarm over platforms such as Tumblr, which has been used to promote and teach self-harm to young people. Such material provides a model of self-harm for young people to imitate. Our passage may address a similar practice, inflicting self-harm by cutting one's own body or hair to distract oneself from the pain and grief following the death of a loved one. Interestingly, in other biblical writings we see the tearing of one's clothes become the culturally accepted expression of mourning. Respecting the biblical taboo against self-harm, this practice destroys the next closest thing, the very clothing upon one's own body. Perhaps the destruction of one's garments serves as a surrogate for the self-mutilation of one's own body. This observation may suggest a link between the psychological impulse towards self-harm and the biblical mourning practice of tearing one's clothes. In our passage, the author relays various boundary markers which give the people a sense of shared communal identity. That said, not all these practices are unique to the Israelites. In fact, many of the food taboos listed in this passage were also observed by other people groups in the ancient Near East. Although various justifications for these dietary taboos have been offered, Thomas Kazin's theory seems to be, at least to me, most plausible. Kazan argues that the primal emotion of disgust drives many of Israel's dietary and purity laws. To illustrate Kazan's theory, let's indulge in a little thought experiment. Imagine being confronted with an animal's mutilated rotting carcass on the side of the road. Do you pick it up and move it? You think about it, but something about touching the roadkill makes your skin crawl. Thankfully, you don't have to move the animal's carcass because your travelling companion volunteers to deal with it. But your relief turns to horror as your companion places the animal carcass in ice in your esky, along with the drinks and picnic lunch you just packed. Your friend explains their excitement and promises to skin and dismember the animal and cook it on the barbecue for both of you to enjoy. How does this make you feel? Gross? Disgusted? Freaked out? We have now entered the realm of disgust, a primitive rejection response which prevents us from indulging in certain activity. If Kazan's theory is correct, this brief thought experiment helps us understand why verse 21 in our text prohibits the consumption of any animal which has died of natural causes. Other dietary taboos, such as those listed in our passage above, may have had the power to elicit disgust in a similar manner. If this disgust emotion is kindled, it could generate division in the community as people who indulge such taboos are rejected by others who happen to find them repulsive. 
By outlawing certain disgust triggers, the law attempts to safeguard unity among the people. Although the native Israelites may not eat the animals they find dead, they may give these animals to the sojourner living among them or sell the dead carcass to foreigners. The term translated sojourner is the Hebrew word ger. It may refer to a foreign person who dwells peacefully among the Israelites or a native Israelite who has been displaced from their land. We're not entirely sure. Throughout Deuteronomy, the ger is protected by the same legal rights extended to Israel's most vulnerable residents. For example, the ger partakes of the Feast of the Tithe, is permitted to glean the corners of the fields for food and is protected from oppression. Whatever their ethnic identity, the ger are welcomed, accepted and protected as part of the tribe. These rights and protections are not extended to the Nakri, often translated as foreigner. In contrast to the Ger, a vulnerable person who dwells among the Israelites, the Nakri belongs to another community altogether. As such, these people are denied the altruism extended to fellow Israelites and the Ger who dwell among them. These laws are bookended by the justification that Israel is a holy people set apart to the Lord, who has chosen them specifically to be his treasured possession above all other peoples. In light of their elevated position, the people must diligently observe the Lord's commands. As we discussed in the last episode, Israel's identity as the Lord's holy people relies upon their observance of these laws. Verse 1 adds that the people are children of God. In ancient thought, a child always bears the image of their parent. By diligently observing the law, the Israelites reflects God's glory and character for all the world to see. Reading on now from the latter part of verse 21. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name to dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, then the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. 
Okay, so what's all this about boiling goats and their mother's milk? The meaning of this statement is hotly debated. While many claim that this prohibition refers to a pagan sacrificial ritual, little evidence to support this claim has been found. The context of this prohibition suggests another interpretation. The verses that follow are concerned with correctly dedicating one's tithe to the Lord. In this vein, the phrase boiling a young goat in its mother's milk may represent an idiom which describes the mixing of old grain from the previous year's harvest into the new season's first fruits offering. If so, this command addresses the temptation to cheat the Lord by substituting the first fruits for stale grain. Underlying such an act lies an unhealthy mimetic desire which drives the offerer to steal from the Lord's portion of the tithe. The rest of our passage continues to stress the importance of the tithe. Even if the journey to the Lord's presence is too far, the people must exchange their tithes for money, which they can bring and use to buy food to sacrifice and enjoy as part of a sacred meal at the temple shrine. We see in this passage Deuteronomy's move towards a sensual sanctuary, to which the tithe must be sent and consumed without excuses. Around this central shrine, Deuteronomy attempts to unite the entire Israelite community as one. Every third year, the tithe was given to the community's poorest members, the Levites, the Gur, the fatherless and the widows. This detail becomes significant when viewed from a mimetic perspective. In other societies, festivals and feasts become a means of social control. For example, in ancient Rome, Caesar would provide lavish feasts every now and again to keep the people happy and content. By these means, the risks of social uprising were minimised and the Pax Romana maintained. Perhaps a similar principle underlies the command to provide a feast for the poor and marginalised every third year. When Israel were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord who defeated their oppressors and set them free. Now in the land of Canaan, the Israelite power structures must be protected against the poor and marginalized who may likewise revolt against the social order if they become disgruntled. Reading on now from chapter 15 verse 1. At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a nukri, you may exact it, but whatever is yours with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this command that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall borrow from none. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. 
but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year is here, the seventh year of release, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you become guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all the work and in all that you undertake." for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go freely. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, so shall you give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this very day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same thing. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any sort of blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever it is, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns, the clean and the unclean alike you may eat it, as though it were the gazelle or the deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Chapter 15 continues with the idea of dedicating the first fruits to the Lord, not grudgingly, but willingly. The idea is then presented that if Israel does this, the Lord will bless them bountifully. Underlying this claim is the principle that if Israel live a non-mimetic lifestyle in the land of Canaan, they will experience divine blessing and prosperity. Israel must diligently resist the call of mimetic rivalry, which calls their hearts to set their desire upon riches and wealth and certain desired objects. When these desires tempt the Israelites to cheat the Lord out of the tithe or to hold on to their Hebrew slaves and not release them, they must stand firm and denounce their mimetic idols. This common thread helps explain why sandwiched between the laws concerning the tithe and the firstborn are several laws concerning debt and indentured servants. 
At the end of seven years, all Israelite debts are cancelled to ensure any generational cycles of poverty are broken. However, notice that this courtesy is not extended to non-Israelite residents. Money lent to foreigners belonging to other communities may still be collected after the seven-year period has expired. In a similar vein, the exhortation to give freely to the poor upon request applies only to the native-born Israelite and not the foreigner. Also, the command to liberate indentured Hebrew servants after six years of service does not apply to foreigners who become enslaved by Israelite masters. Moreover, released Israelite slaves are given wine, grain, and livestock to help them start their new life. While these laws ensure that members of the community do not get trapped in a cycle of debt and servitude, Deuteronomy does not extend this concern to the members of other nations. Why? Well, let's consider this question from a mimetic perspective. We've already noted that this passage calls the Israelite people to resist the call of their mimetic desire for wealth and riches, which will ultimately lead them to oppressing their fellow Israelites. If this happens, it may generate mimetic rivalry between masters and servants, between debtors and those who owe debt within the community. If this rivalry is allowed to flourish, it may facilitate an uprising of the proletariat, much as we saw in the Exodus narrative when Israel revolted against their Egyptian overlords. To avoid this situation, the Israelites are encouraged to resist mimetic desire so that they may deal fairly and justly with their fellow Israelites. The same concern for justice is not directed towards foreigners because that's the whole point of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy aims to minimize mimetic rivalry within the Israelite community while directing mimetic violence outwards. Within this framework, the other, the person from another tribe, is always viewed with suspicion they are the enemy upon whom mimetic impulses must be vented so that peace and order may be enjoyed within the Israelite community. Through these laws, Deuteronomy gives us a bit of an insight about how mimetic rivalry and desire can fuel a tribal mindset that treats members of their own community kindly, but outsiders with fear and suspicion. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.